Welcome to episode number 79 of the Engage and Equip podcast. In this episode, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson from the most recent Engage and Equip Live. At this Engage and Equip Live, he was talking about affirmation and correction, how we need to affirm and edify people and build them up, and how that is an incredibly powerful tool that God has given us to impact people around us, and how we also need to speak corrective words with candor to one another if we're going to help get one another onto a path that is leading towards where God would have us go. So take a listen. We're going to get into Engage and Equip Live pretty quickly tonight, but remember, this is the place to receive equipping for ministry. The first hour is always a general principle that applies no matter where you're serving, and then the second second hour is always specific Um, specific training for your specific area of ministry. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about candor and why that's important for as we're doing ministry together. And we're going to start off by sharing a couple of stories of ways that candor has affected people's lives. So first, Nicole is going to come join me up here and she's going to share a little story about candor in her life. Okay. No, can you guys hear me? Okay. She's got 90 seconds, so if anybody... Oh, 70. Sorry. So um, when I first graduated from college, my husband and I joined staff with a campus ministry called Crew, and we were raising support for a couple of years, and then we finally got to campus, and we were very excited, and I had all sorts of ideas of why things weren't working and why how we could make them better, and um, I thought all of those things, but what I didn't realize is that in a lot of our staff meetings... The way I was coming across is I would say things that were just my opinion, but I would say them as if they were some moral absolute. And so it really just shut all conversation down. And I didn't realize it, but I was really hurting our staff uh, team dynamics. And um, I was hurting the feelings of a lot of my staff members. So my coach talked to me and she told me that I was doing this and she told me that it was wrong and how um, I might have strategic ideas or ways to improve things and that that's good, but I needed to know how to share those ideas and I needed to know when to share them and when it was appropriate and how to do it in a way that wouldn't just end a conversation, but could actually encourage dialogue. And so it was really hard for me to hear that. It hurt a lot, but I also came to realize how true it was. And then I tried. I tried really hard to change. 63 seconds. It's very well done. Very well done. We have three more, which is why which is why these need to be 70 seconds or less. So Jill is going to share our second story of the night. Um, when I first uh, came on staff at High Point, I was the communications coordinator. And part of my job then is to give the announcements. And I was experiencing crippling insecurity about this part of my role. And it was really obvious when I was on stage I would sound really nervous and so one Sunday uh, it was really bad and I came off the stage and into the staff hallway and Lloyd um, pulled me into his office and he sat me down and he looked at me and he said Jill you're scared and I immediately started crying because he was correct and (laughs) um, from there he was very encouraging and told me to like the only thing you can do is get back up and do it again but um, I needed to be called out for my fear so that I could repent and grow in my faith and in my security in Christ so that was really helpful 52 seconds so Mike can you beat those and look at how much she's changed now able to beat come up here full of confidence anyways you're up, Mike. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, but you deserved it. 
So when I came here, uh, my past experience had been in corporate church and with a large parachurch organization, and I'm a boomer, and so it was top-down, corner office, all that kind of stuff, and I showed up, and there's a hall full of millennials, and so we didn't get along real well, leadership-wise, the first, what, how long, Aaron, year? And uh, so one day, one day, Hannah walks in my office, and she hands me a book called Quiet, and she says, there's a chapter here you need to read. And she had it marked, turned around, and walked out. At first, kind of ticked me off. Who do you think she is? So I read the chapter, and God ticked me off. But at myself, because it was really good, and I realized I needed to change. And I wasn't here to change them. I was here to help lead. And so one of the things that really caught my attention was that um, when a when a the title of the book or the chapter was The Myth of the Charismatic Leader. And when a person like myself leads an introvert as if they were an extrovert, their productivity goes down 22%. When I can reverse that and lead them for who they are, it goes up 22%. Well, that's a 44% swing in productivity, and that really is a lot. So the Lord convicted me, and I had to change my leadership style for their good. And Hannah later was like, you're doing good, you know, and she coached me. But I had to learn that I had to make the changes. They didn't. And in order to serve them well, it was my responsibility. So I really was grateful for Hannah and most of the other staff <laughs> for putting up with me and helping me do that during that time. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> and lastly, the... Uh, Erin is going to come up and share her story as well. All right, so my story is also about a pastor at High Point Church. Um, so <laughs> five years ago, um, Jason and I had moved here from the Twin Cities where we had been really involved in a youth group and church up there. And um, after being here about six months, we decided we wanted to become small group leaders. So we joined the small group leader training, which was at Nick's house, and there were I think eight or 10 discussions that would happen over a course of a few months and um, maybe halfway through or so we were talking, I think about either identity or um, belonging. And I started sharing how um, I was really, it was hard being here in Madison because I didn't feel known and I didn't know really where to serve. And I felt like people don't, people didn't really know who I was. And Nick cut me off as I was talking and said, Aaron, you don't just want to be known. You want people to know how great you are. <laughs> I just died inside a little bit in front of everybody there. I was super embarrassed. And um, at the same time, I knew that was exactly what I needed to hear. And the following year was a lot that I learned about um, humility and what it meant to actually serve um, out of a right heart in a church. So thank you, Nick. <laughs> Great. Awesome. So yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about can Nick, well, we're, Nick's going to be talking about candor. And then after that, we'll be going into our individual breakouts to be trained in our different ministry areas. So before we go into that, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you um, that you speak to us through your word with candor, that you are, you are always willing to, to speak the truth to us. God, I ask you to help us to um, as part of our ministry, to to speak truth, to both be encouraging and to speak with candor and to build up people who are around us and in our ministries. God, I ask that you'd help us to make us into effective leaders, that we would 
um, have a powerful impact for the gospel and that ultimately we would we would come to believe you more and trust you more as we go through the process of courage that is required for candor. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. I'm a little frazzled. I was coaching on the other side of town. Uh, that, that's why I have a orange t-shirt on because it's the only orange shirt I have and that's our team colors and then I realized that I had misplaced the key to the vehicle I had driven and I had been looking at a clock to figure out when I should leave to get back here that was stopped but it was stopped really close to the time I needed to leave and so I'm sorry I'm just a little here we are okay so I want to uh, as soon as you guys bring up that Prezi I want to review a little bit from last week because this is essentially a continuation from the last time we were together so the last time we were together I started with what are we remember this what are we and the answer was quitters. quitters and that both how people functionally tend to lose their faith and how the Bible actually talks about human beings in the process of spiritual warfare that discouragement of different kinds is usually very key in people turning away from the Lord in all kinds of ways. And so, here we go. And so, discouragement is very fundamental to our, to who we are as people and in terms of the vigilance of what we need to fight against. And so last week I talked about that, therefore, one of the biggest jobs of any Christian in any kind of ministry of any sort is encouragement. Um, and one of the, the, one of the biblical words for this is edification, which is, which is exactly what it sounds like etymologically, which is the building of a building, the process of constructing a building from nothing to everything, and both in terms of adding the materials and building it in a way that has structural integrity. I'm going to talk about why I distinguish those two things in just a minute. And so we talked a little bit about that last week, how you could narrow down everything that we're doing as trying to build other people up in Christ. Okay? Now, there's a couple ways that you could break that down. Um, and so what I want to talk about tonight in specific is how we use the, the tongue or how we talk to affect other people and to have a impact ministry-wise. Okay? So the Bible says a couple very specific things about our speech. And one of the most specific, direct, and moderately offensive, if you're, if you're not thinking correctly about this, is that in the book of James, for example, um, it says that the normal, typical human use of our voice is to fling deadly evil everywhere around us on everyone around us. Okay? That if we could... If we could actually look at the world with the kind of spiritual eyes that angels have, and if we thought just mainly about our words, what we would see is a world of everybody projectile vomiting on everybody else. Okay? That's disgusting, right? That's dis but that's what's happening constantly in human affairs. Okay? And so in order to even start to have a vocal, because what you say is one of those, that's one of the most powerful things about you, right? Jesus says that what overflows out of your heart comes out of your mouth. And so you can tell what you're really like by what you say, and you can tell what's really going on inside of you, and a huge amount of the power that you have in the world to do good or evil 
comes in the form of sound waves from you. Okay? And so the first thing we have to recognize is without seeking godliness in our speech and taming the horrific evil of the tongue, that's never going to happen. Okay? The second thing is affirmation. That if we're supposed to build people up, we've got to add materials somehow. We've got to move the job forward. And affirmation kind of gives that power. It gives that, that push that people need because people tend to be discouraged or they tend to not know what to put more energy into, right? Because people are actually pretty horrifically insecure. And, they, and oftentimes they don't even really know it. And they also don't know when they're doing things really well. And they often don't know when they could get a lot better at something. Does that make sense? And then third is correction, which is attending to the structural integrity of a person's structure or character, making sure that there's no weak points that will create a collapse. So, like, that's one of the reasons why flattery is such a terrible thing. Because flattery is to tell people that everything's fine even when everything isn't fine. And so they act like that's affirmation. Well, if they're if they're foolish enough to not see what you're doing, right? If they see what you're doing, then they just know you're a liar and they can't trust you, right? But a lot of people aren't that sophisticated. And so they take it as that your flattery is affirmation. And so they, they keep moving up the building. They keep slapping on the drywall and they put the stuff in there. They put in all the electricity. And meanwhile, there's something radically problematic with beam number two. And as they build up the edifice of their life based on your flattery, they keep putting all this more weight. They keep moving ahead. And, and after a while, beam two collapses and everything comes down. And you see, without candor, without the willingness to come into the structural lack of integrity in somebody's life, spiritually speaking, or morally speaking, or psychologically speaking, and to say, this thing right here, it's not bearing the weight it needs to bear. There's something amiss here. We need to fix this. Because if we don't fix this, you're gonna, you're, what, you, what you're going to do is you're going to layer coping mechanisms on top of this, and there's going to be just so far you can go, and eventually life is going to overwhelm you. And see, if you will not engage in loving correction towards other people, you are not invested in their perseverance or their growth. And that's a terrible, unloving attitude to have towards another person. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's pop through these real quick. The first is, the tongue is typically used for evil, right? So James says this, Likewise, the tongue is the smallest part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what, great, what a great forest is set on fire by just a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Do you see what he's saying? It's a small piece of your body, but it, because it has your voice wrapped up in it, it's like a whole world, right? It's a big thing. It, it corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So, right, your tongue is tied to the flesh. So whatever is going on in, in the activity of the flesh or the sinful nature, right, is tied to your mouth. So se hell sets the tongue on fire. And it can corrupt the whole person, and it sets the whole course of people's lives. Whether your own life, what you tell yourself or what you say, or what you speak into somebody else's life that they might set the course of their life on the basis of. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. 
but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth we comes both praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Now he does not say that we have tamed many animals in the world, but we can't tame the tongue so that we would all become despondent of speaking well and we'd just quit trying. He says, out of our mouths comes cursing and blessing, and this should not be. So when he says it as though nobody tames the tongue, he's, he's saying this. You're sitting there thinking that you've tamed it, and you haven't. You need to think of yourself in the group of people who have not tamed their tongue. And if you think that way, and you are vigilant about your words that way, and you look at your words as revealing what's going on in your heart, it will change your life. Your tongue will become a barometer for what is happening in you spiritually and where you are morally and what you really believe psychologically. And if that's the case, you will be so convicted by how you talk. And if that happens, it will drive you to Jesus to repent and to believe and to face your insecurities and to grow. And amazingly good things will happen. And the tongue can be tamed if you start by thinking you haven't tamed it. Does that make sense? And so th you have to start with a profound understanding of the natural and typical negativity of our greatest power. And if you don't think that way, you don't have a chance of ministering to people well in your life. The, a huge portion of the ministry you will do will be through speech. Right? Secondly, okay. Secondly is affirmation. I want to review, because I didn't talk that much about it last time, but affirmation is a big part of this, right? And affirmation is adding materials to someone's structure, confirming the right direction of the construction, if you think about it in edification terms. And so there's, there's four things that I think you should know. And if you get these four things, I think you'll be able to constructively engage in affirmation well. The first is affirmation is a worship issue. You are affirming in someone else that which connects to things that are true about God. So are they growing spiritually? That's something to affirm. Is there some way they're living out their bearing of the image of God? Boom, there's something to affirm. Are they acting with some fruit of the Spirit? Boom, there's something to affirm. Anything that could be connected to the work of God and therefore worship is a good object of affirmation. Because what's the most important thing about a person? That they're made in the image of God and that through Christ they are being remade through the work of the Spirit and redemption into true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 3 says. That's the most important thing about anybody at any time. And it's by far the most important thing. And so our affirmation should ring with those subjects. Right? Now think about your parenting for a minute. Right? Ouch. Okay. So, two. Connect affirmation to truth, not flattery, and to the giving of courage, not inflaming pride. So if I'm thinking about what I'm going to say to somebody, I want to think of something that is true in the worship's theological sense and something that will give them courage to move further in the right direction. And I want to make sure what I'm saying is not flattery, seeking to bring them closer to myself or to make them my asset, or something that I think will inflame their pride. Does that make sense? 
if you think that of that dichotomy, what will put courage in them and what will be true and what will not be flattery and what will not inflame their pride. That'll, that'll organize whether or not what you're about to say works. Right? And then if one and two, if you start with those two as the basis for affirmation, you can hardly do it too much. I don't know anybody, I've never met anybody who affirms others too much. I've met other people who I think, tr like, they praise other people constantly without knowledge or clarity about what they're actually affirming. And so it's either flattery or feels like flattery, and it's kind of annoying. I have a pastor friend who's like that. I'm just kind of like, just take a minute and get specific. This doesn't feel right. Does that make sense? But I, like, I don't know any. Do you know anybody who does those two things in affirming and affirms too much? Raise your hand if you know somebody who affirms like that and affirms too much. You see the point I'm making here? You just can't. And so just basically everybody can just start with this. If you want to minister to other people, think in terms of like some becoming some multiple of an affirmer than you are right now. Twice as much, three times as much, 12 times as much. But like have in your mind, some, like I would write it down somewhere right now. Go get a tattoo like on your inner forearm. I'm, don't do that. That's not really probably necessary. But like get a multiple in your head. Write it in a journal, right? This is the biggest ministry of your life. Words make such a difference. There are listen, there are people who have never been deeply and heartfeltedly, if that's a word, affirmed in their whole life. They've been flattered. They've been run down. People have said things in passing without knowing them at all. But nobody's looked at them clearly observed something so that they knew what they were talking about and deeply affirmed something about them. I've seen grown men in their 40s burst into tears because nobody's ever affirmed them before. Not really. And it's not a few people out there you might run into. It's epidemic. There's whole generations where it wasn't considered good to affirm children, for example. Now there's whole generations of children who have only received flattery. And that's basically all there is. There aren't hardly any generations of Americans who have received good, godly affirmation and not flattery and not had affirmation withheld. Most generations, it's been one or the other. It was like, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, you can take a punch to like, oh, you're the greatest thing that's ever existed. And none of that helps, right? And then, okay, I already did that one. Okay, so. So, and so you might think, well, Nick, isn't that a little narrow? Like, just, like, it has to be worship directly related to something theological. It doesn't feel like I could become three times the affirmer I am right now. And so I made just a short list of affirmation possibilities that you could see in another person. Anything that honors God that they do? 
any moral good in their life, any kindness that they engage in, any growth that you see over time, any rejection of temptation, anything that's not typical, any repentance, any devotion or fervor, any peacemaking, any gospel risk, any sacrifice, any rightly ordered thinking, any honest confession, any profession of truth, any service of others, any honorable service in the world, any dedication to right vocation, any diligence, any developed skill used for good, any display of a godly attitude, any willingness to be rejected for telling the truth or doing the good. Now, obviously, some of those overlap a little bit. But you get my point? Once you really start thinking a little bit more deeply, anything that is good in God, which is every good in every truth that anybody participates in, is fodder for affirmation. Anything. Right? You guys, like just that you guys being here tonight, every single one of you chose to be here instead of like watching TV or doing something else. And it shows me that you care about what we're trying to do together. And it shows me that you care about each other. And it shows me that you don't expect me to carry everything here. And it, it shows me that you want to reach people and see them grow in their faith. And I know all of that just by the fact that you came here tonight. And it encourages me that we're part of something together. And it tells me something about your spirituality. And I'm encouraged by it, and I hope you are too. Right? All you did, you just came here tonight, right? But like, all right. So let's move on to candor. Now, um, the biblical words for this is rebuke, correction, scourge. <laughs> There's a number of different contexts for people being corrected in the Bible. Sometimes I like to use the word candor in multiple contexts because people who aren't Christianized linguistically connect with that a little bit better and they understand it a little easier. And when I explain candor as you tell the truth, the real truth to somebody, right? Um, whatever they, whatever is in th for their good that they need to hear. People go, oh yeah. And then when you say, well, you need to correct people and they go, what? I couldn't possibly. It's kind of like telling people that let's get together, let's get together to grow in service, right? And people come. And if I, but we, if I say, this is a leadership event, two thirds of you wouldn't have come, right? But this is a leadership event. This is a subgroup of people who care, who came here on Monday night to learn how to minister more among a larger group of people who didn't. Therefore, you are by definition the leaders, right? Whether you like it or not. I mean, I know some of you, it makes you terrified, right? But that, and so I just call it, it's just a service gathering. Learn how to minister and serve other people, right? So there's two things necessary. So correction is essentially this, attending to the structural integrity of a person's character or structure. That is, you're trying to edify them. You're trying to build them up. But that building up has to have structural integrity or it's going to collapse. And when it collapses, it's going to hurt them and everybody their life touches. Does that make sense? And so there's two things that it requires at least. And the first is humility. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to not be very good at correction. Because we tend to not be very serious about humility. Nobody wishes to receive correction from the proud. And it is very hard to act humble in a way that isn't transparent if you're not humble. And one of the best ways for somebody else to realize that you may have the necessary humility to correct others is for you to live with a track record of longing for other people to correct you for your good. And I, I don't mean, okay, so see, normally when somebody would type that sentence, they would type somebody being open to correction. Right? If you're humble, you should be open to correction. Okay? Open to correction kind of means like you're probably relatively perfect, but if for some reason, like 
you became temporarily imperfect, you would be open to somebody sharing with you how you might be able to repent and believe and improve or something, right? That's crazy. Like this, I've got, I mean, how long, you guys have been living with me for eight years. Like, how many faults do you think we could come up with in this room that I've got a track record that you all know about? More than 15? Maybe, probably, yeah, see? One honest person, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Right? A lot of them. There's a lot of them, Right? Like, I cannot walk around in my life and be like, well, you know, I should be open. You know, if, if Kara, may, maybe she'll talk, maybe she'll have something to share with me. No, there's like 35 things or I don't know how many. God, you know more than I do. And so I have to have the attitude where I'm longing for you to say, Nick, this thing you did, I don't think that was helpful. It feels like you were doing that instead of this. And, and then I need to be like, thank you so much for telling me that. That's so helpful, and you're the ninth person to tell me that, especially since Monday when I gave that talk, and because what happens is if you, have, if you live in a community of candor, people will pile up on the things that are most obvious about your character, and so then you'll know, hey, work on that thing, man, because four people told you, but if nobody tells you anything, you have no idea, and you, it's hard for you to prioritize what to work on, because most of us have so many faults, it's hard to even know where to start, Right? And then you just got your spouse nagging you. And like if she needs some help or he needs some help, maybe you get a couple other people and be like, oh, clearly I talk when I should listen. You get five people to tell you that, you know that's the number one thing you need to work on. And it only happens if people are willing to do it. Okay, so there's at least two things required. One is humility, long to receive correction, and to be willing to give correction only for the good of others. And two is spiritual perceptiveness. You've got to know what to correct because you understand human nature in the gospel. So the ability to correct actually comes from growing godliness because you have to be perceptive enough to actually know what's going on in somebody, right? Otherwise, you're just going to end up picking on people or getting after a symptom, not the real cause, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, one of the things I think is, is very helpful is w when I was— I, I, it'll be hard for some of you to believe this, but when I was a younger man, like— 15 to 18 or 19 in that, that neighborhood more. I was thought of as a, a bit of an unregulated, impetuous sort of person who said foolish things out loud and um, was thought of as mildly immature even by some. And when I, when I went to college from in my undergrad year, I started reading the book of Proverbs every month. So Book of Proverbs has 21 chap 31 chapters. And so I would read the chapter of Proverbs for that day, every day, every month. And then I would read other stuff in the Bible too. But I would always, every single day, read a whole chapter of Proverbs. And then after I would read the Bible for about half an hour, I would journal for about 10 minutes. And in that, I would always isolate one or two of those Proverbs, usually ones I hadn't isolated previously. And I would write them down, and I would think about what they meant, and I would memorize some of them, not anywhere near all of them right? And in 12 months, people just started treating me completely differently. They would ask me questions. They would bounce off life situations off of me. They would call me on the telephone from other states. This thing's going on. What do you think? And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I, I realized that the book of Proverbs has all these proverbs in it. 
and they're all, and they're all wise and like a, and you expose yourself to them and you think about them and you assume they're right and then you figure they have something to teach you and then you do that for like months and like before you know it you have learned an awful lot about life and one of the themes that comes up over and 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 over again is humility and um listening to people who correct you and wanting to know the truth and being willing to face things. And so there's so many of them, right? So Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Because there's also a lot of Proverbs about foolishness and stubbornness. None of you would know this who work in the youth ministry, but my oldest daughter struggles a little bit with stubbornness. You, I don't know if you know this, but my wife's not here. I can tell you this. Cause we'll, and then I can find out if she listens to the podcast. But like, her childhood nickname given to her by her parents is the mule. That's her childhood. So anytime we have an argument about which of us is more stubborn, I just say, I let it go on for a little while, and then I just say, sweetie, your childhood nickname was the mule, right? And, like, that's the end of it, right? That ends every discussion on that. And so my oldest daughter is a little stubborn. And so we read these a lot at home in family devotions about, like, what foolishness gets you and what wisdom gets you because— it's true, right? Um, 11.2 says, when, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So humility comes before longing to be corrected. It comes before a willingness to correct, but it also comes before wisdom, which is the spiritual discernment you need to correct others, to speak with them with loving candor. So humility is, John Stott said it this way, in Christian spirituality, humility is always your greatest friend, and pride always your greatest enemy. It's categorical. Pride is always your greatest enemy. No matter what situation you're in, pride never helps you. There's certain kinds of courageous confidence that can help you, but better to think about that as courage, a willingness to face danger, not I'm great. Humility will always help you so long as you don't confuse humility with insecurity. Does that make sense? Okay. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. 2612, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's mo more hope for a fool than for them. Right? Proverbs 1, the book of Proverbs starts with the horrific danger of being unresponsive to correction. Right? It says, if you'd responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. What does that mean? That means that what happens if you reject correction that you should receive? You don't just miss out on that correction. You miss out on all the rest. Right? The wise father in this case, Solomon, but you could see the voice of God behind this, I think, in a theologically correct way. If you would have listened to this rebuke and you would have taken it in with the wisdom and you would have benefited from it, I, would have, I have a lot more in my heart for you. And the reason it's heart is because it is wisdom, but it is loving towards you. It's for your good. It's all this wisdom for your good and life and honor and blessing. And he said, I would have poured all of this out to you. But, you, but once I gave you one rebuke and you wouldn't listen, what's the point? Wise people don't keep talking at people who don't listen. They go find people who will listen. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, 
when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps you like a whirlwind, when, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. And you might be like, Nick, that, wait, that's not the voice of God, is it? Well, you know, read Jeremiah and Ezekiel before you're too sure. And you can see this in the books, book of Psalms. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes a covenant, his covenant known to them. Right? The idea that God would confide in you and make all the things wrapped up in his covenant, his, his, his love towards us, his actions towards us, understood by you, should be like me offering you gold if you love Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. There, and then there's, like, this keeps going, okay? So, <clears throat> instead of going on with more Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs exists in your Bible and you could read it, okay? One of the things I've tried to do in the eight years that I've been here, especially on our staff team, is to create a culture of candor, but that is also a culture of affirmation. Right? We, we, what we say on staff is candor with kindness. Right? Because it always has to be for the other person's good. And I was, I remember a, a while, and I, I think this is probably true of most of the younger staff members. I, I think I remember it best with Aaron. But I think Erin was here for two years or three. I can't remember how long she was here. And uh, I, I think I had corrected somebody on something, and they had not responded positively. And they probably said I was like an arrogant jerk or something like that, which is fair. Um, but I was trying to figure out if I, I was doing that systematically or if that person was being— I did, it's, you, it's hard to know sometimes. And so I said, I think, I think if I remember this correctly, it was Erin. I said, Erin, have I corrected you a lot of times in the last three years? And she, her answer was something like, Yes. Right. And I said, can you think of any time where you didn't feel like it was for your good? That it was like about me or I was just doing it to talk or like any time where it was something other than me trying to make your life better and make your relationship with God more full. And I was expecting her to say what I was hoping for was not very often, <laughs> right? And she said something like, no, no, it hurts sometimes, but I know when you correct me, it is always for my good. And I think what she meant by that was over time, she just knew that as a leader, I cared about her. And like, if I like screwed up one time, she still knew that overall, because you're going to screw up. Like you're going to say stuff and it's not going to be that kind always. But if you really, if you start with the idea of edification, I am here to build other people up. Namely, to build up their faith so that they can trust God and they can learn to walk in godliness and become strong, courageous, and powerful and full of hope themselves. That's what I'm doing. I'm edifying. And I've got two main tools. I've got affirmation and I've got correction. Those are my two main tools. And I'm going to use them every minute of every day whenever I can. And I'm going to become some multiple of the affirmer and encourager I am right now. Because insecurity and hurt and discouragement are epidemic in a fallen world. And if I don't positively take hold of my tongue and use it for what it's for, it will become a deadly fire burning down the woods of everybody's lives. But if I take up this mantle that James like slaps us in the face to throw in front of us, 
if we only got this right, if, if, if as a church we only got affirmation right, and that's basically it, it would be so rare that people would not really know what to do with us. And if we got a couple of things right, <laughs> like exhorting people towards Jesus and affirmation right, I, I, I can't imagine the limit of blessing that would flow in such a situation. And when it comes right down to it, it's things like pride and insecurity and stinginess of heart and fear that we won't be able to continue to control people if we build them up beyond us. It's, it's a ter- listen, it's terrible things in us that hold back affirmation. Terrible, demonic things. And Jesus wants us to take hold of this heritage of lifting up other people in affirmation and encouragement. Does that make sense? Okay, so I, apparently I'm allowed to talk for eight more minutes. Let's do this instead. Why don't you turn to the people at your table? If you know anybody at your table well enough, so here, here's, here's what you should do. Have everybody talk for 20 seconds about themselves, just about their lives, just 20 seconds. Just go around in, in less than two minutes, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you do it. We'll, we'll do it like, yeah, we'll do it for two minutes. And then you're going to go around and affirm each person for 40 seconds. Okay? Now, I know that sounds crazy. You'd be surprised how much you can learn about what's about from one sentence of a person and what it reveals. You already know something because they're here tonight. You already know some of the people at your table. You've already seen certain things. You already had a conversation before this. You actually already know 40 or 50 things you could say to affirm every single person at your table if you thought about it. Right? The whole point is for you to feel uncomfortable. That's the whole point. <laughs> okay? So let's turn to our table. Start with one person. Have them talk for 20 seconds. Ready? Designate someone, go. Okay, stop. Let me have your attention up here. I need full participation for about two minutes, okay? Look up here right now. <clears throat> Raise your hand if that was difficult for you. You had to push through inhibitions to participate in that. Okay, great. How many of you feel honestly encouraged personally because of what was said to you? Okay. How many of you feel like you were able to say numerous things honestly about the other person? That it actually wasn't hard to find honest, encouraging things to say. Okay? Right? How many of you feel personally encouraged because you got to say encouraging things to others and saw its effect on them? Okay? See where I'm going with this? Yeah. 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 How many of you think that little that we have done at the church in the last eight years is the Holy Spirit naturally pleased with than what we did just now? I've, I mean, I've, I feel like it's very uncommon, right? It's not that hard. It costs nothing. Think about this. The most, one of the fundamental theological ideas is that everything is gift. Creation's a gift. Your existence is a gift. What God's given you to do in your life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Every good thing in your life is a gift. Everything is gift. We live on the, in the basic metaphor and assumption of 
grace, of gift, okay? Affirmation is the only way where you literally have the power of God because there is almost limit, no limit to how much talking you can generate, right? God can generate a universe. So yeah, especially you, Femi, right? And me and the two of us. Yeah, yeah, but like that just means we're powerful, right? If we use it right, you, like, because you can, it doesn't, you don't die a little when you talk, right? Like you can say things to this person and then that person. And if I affirm Tony, it doesn't mean I can't turn over here and affirm Andy. I can affirm everybody. I can, like you have an, almost an unlimited resource that fundamentally transforms the world around you. Right there. You want training for ministry? You just got a seminary education. We never did this in my seminary education. I got a really good seminary education. We never did this. We were all introverted academics, you know? <laughs> Jesus said something like, now that you've heard what I said, you will be blessed if you do it. Okay, let's break up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps that are like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.